good morning, church. Ah, oh, that was awesome. It's so good to be here. My name is David. My family's been around here for about a decade, and we just love this place. If you are new around here, our prayer, like Josh was saying, is that this feels like home for you. So we are in week three of our series called Glimpses of Truth. And I'm really excited about this one, and I... It, there, it's probably going to go long because there's a lot to talk about. So just, just gear up. So here's the deal. So glimpses of truth, we're looking at where are the portraits of God in the Old Testament that look like Jesus? And because that we've been looking at over the last few months that there are just a couple of portraits in the Old Testament that don't quite look like Jesus. And the question is, what do we do with those? So last week we talked about... Uh, uh, we, I, I did it. I should remember. What do we do? Does God does not play favorites. And he doesn't play favorites. It's such good news. So Greg is out of town this week. He is in Canada speaking. He's hanging out with our buddy Bruxy who came out with a new book. So that's pretty exciting. Um, but we're going to be talking about this question, is God into rules? So our focus verse for this series is Hebrews 1. So we're going to look at this together. Hebrews 1 says, God who gave our forefathers many different glimpses of the truth. And this word glimpses could also mean fragmentary or a partial view of the truth in the words of the prophets in the Old Testament and has now at the present age given us the truth in the Son. Through the Son, God made the whole universe and to the Son, he has ordained that all creation shall ultimately belong this sun is the radiance of the glory of God, the flawless expression, the mirror image, the character and printing of the nature of God that we see in this sun. So we get to talk about rules today. Yes. Now, I have, I, I've come to the conclusion there are two types of people. There are people who believe rules are made to be followed. And there are people who believe rules are made to be broken. So what I'd like to do is take a minute here and I want you to tell your neighbor which one you are. So take a minute, talk to somebody and then we'll come back together. All right, all right, all right. Stop it already. Okay. So, uh, how many rule followers are in the room? Rule followers? How many rule breakers we got? <laughs> we got a lot of proud rule breakers in the room. All right. So, here's how it works in my family. In my family, I tend to be the rule follower. My opinion is if you made the rule, you probably meant to mean the rule, so let's follow the rule so we don't mess it up. My wife, she's not here. Uh, my wife is the rule breaker. Her opinion is, well, if we have the rule, it's probably because you haven't tried the better option. So how that works in our family is we end up breaking the rules a lot because I'm a good husband. So. One of the rules we had was we don't need any more pets. We don't need any more pets. And then this happened. 
So this is Gabriella Hope Morrow. Um, this is my, my daughter's bunny. And we like to break rules. I'm learning to break rules. And uh, I, I want to tell you guys a little story. So here's the deal. I think it's good to give your wife flowers. Amen? Yeah? Amen. Okay, so sometimes I bring flowers home and I'll bring them home for my wife and my daughter because, you know, there's this thing in marriage called points and you you earn points. And so what what I thought I would do is like, I I don't do it as often as I should, but I thought, well, what 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 if I said Tuesdays were flower day? So every Tuesday, I would bring home flowers for my wife and my daughter. Do you think they would be all right with that? And then what if I thought, I'm gonna up the game. Not only am I going to bring them flowers, I'm going to bring my daughter her favorite flowers. And then I'm going to bring my wife her favorite flowers. How do you think they'd receive that? If you're getting an elbow in your ribs, it's because you have not given flowers recently enough. (laughs) And, And then I thought, okay, we could up the game even more. What if... I brought, I brought my daughter flowers, her favorite flowers, and I wrote her a card. And the card said, Junia, I'm so proud of you. I just love the woman you're becoming. And then what if, what if for my wife, I wrote her a card and I said, Erica, I am so grateful to get to partner in life with you. You're such an amazing mom. You're such an amazing wife. I just love you. How do you think that would go over? Really good. <laughs> really good. And so, so, let, so let's say I get the deal. So I, do, I know the deal. It's like, okay, Tuesdays, I, my daughter gets her favorite flowers. I write her the card. I bring my wife her flowers. I write her the card. And then let's say I, just, I do this every Tuesday. And about two or three months later, I come home and I bring the flowers in and they say, oh, they're so beautiful. Thank you so much. And I say, well, that's just what we do on Tuesdays. Tuesday is flower day. I bring you flowers, and I write you a card, and it says the same thing every time. I bring you flowers. Aren't you grateful? And, and then I say, well, and you know what I found out? At the flower shop, they have this punch card, and like, <laughs> this, this was my 10th flower, so these were free. So like, I, I wasn't even thinking about you because it's what we do Tuesdays, and it was free. It was such a good deal. Don't even worry about it. Do you think she'd want the flowers anymore? (laughs) There is a danger sometimes of doing things religiously. There is a danger sometimes of, uh, over time, what at one time had been transformational can become transactional. That it's possible to be like dealing with the fine print because in business it's important to have like all the boxes checked, all the I's dotted, all the T's crossed and it works great in business but in relationship all the details correct, the fine print can actually kill the relationship. It can destroy it because what it's about is your heart. It's about that relationship with God and so the question we're dealing with today is, is God into rules? Is he into rituals? Is he into routines? Is he into regulations? Does God just want the same flowers every week? Does he just want the same flowers every week? And ultimately, my answer is going to be no, but the problem is there's a lot of religious language and religious circles where there's an understanding that God just wants us to follow the rules. He just wants us to get in line. 
And so we're going to be diving into that a little bit today. And the first thing I want to do is introduce you to three words. I'm guessing some of them you might know. So the first word is this one. Torah. Anybody heard of that word? Yeah? A couple of you? All right. Uh, The next one is the word... Mishnah. Maybe a few less, okay? And then the last one is the word... Gomorrah. Maybe a few less people? All right, so here's the deal. The Torah. We're going to start there. The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, everybody's favorite devotional reading. (laughs) Now, these were the most sacred books in the Jewish tradition. The most sacred books. And so what you do with the most sacred books is if this is God's word to you, you want to figure out what God says to you. What does he ask of you? And so the Jewish leaders, they decided to do that. They looked through the Old Testament to say, what does God want from us? And guess what they found? How many rules do you think they found? 613. 613 rules. And so I was trying to figure out, okay, how do you visualize 613? So I need two volunteers. Yeah? All right, come on up. All right, come on up. This will be fun. All right. So I I love people that volunteer not knowing what they're doing. (laughs) It's the best. All right, so here's the deal. I decided, well, why don't I type them all up? So, and we'll just read them all together. Okay, so here you go. You hold this side, and then you're going to have to walk off the stage. It's good to have you here. Who are you, by the way? I'm Joe. Hi, Joe. It's good to have you here, man. And tell us your name. Ryan. This is Ryan. All right, Ryan. All right, Ryan, back off. You got to get off the stage. All right. All right. Here, you grab that end. Hold it. Can you guys pull it tight a little bit? All right. Don't break it, though. We only have one. All right. So we have 613 rules. Laws. How you doing on these? You got those ones nailed down? Okay, so I, I want to give you just kind of a, a sampling of what's in here. So somebody from over in this section, give me a number between 1 and 613. 18. We're down here with Joe. Don't oppress the weak. That's a good one. All right. If you're oppressing the weak, stop it. Um, <laughs> All right, somebody over here, between number between 1 and 613. 444. That's down here by Ryan. Um, oh, yep. Carry out the procedure of the red heifer. Bunch of sinners. All right, somebody back there, give me a number. What? 26. All right. 26. Don't blaspheme. Got it. Nailed it. Done. All right. Somebody up here in the, in the, the expensive seats. What? 222. Oh. He mu- you must not eat grape seeds. Bunch of sinners. All right. Okay, how about a number from back there? Yeah, what do you got? What? 593. That's way down here. 
Yeah, the king must not have too many wives. Now, here's the deal. They don't specify how many is too many. All right, let, let's get one more from over here. One more number. 613. Wow, the last one. It must be important. Yeah, we're not reading that one in church. Okay, uh, can I get a different one? I need... <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in the Bible. All right, one more number. <laughs> what do you got? <laughs> Give me a different number. What do you got? 600. All right. You can come look later. All right. Oh, this one's important. Okay. Don't forget Amalek's atrocities and an ambush when you journey to Egypt. Bunch of sinners. Okay, so here's the deal. There is a lot going on in these 613 laws. And um, okay, you guys can just set that down right here. You guys did a tremendous job. Thank you for your help. Woo! <laughs> All right, so here's the thing. So we have 613 laws. Now, if you want to know how to follow God, you need to, like, you need more detail than this, right? Because we had the one law about don't have too many wives. Well, what if you need to know how many is too many? So what happened was the Jewish leaders came up with this, the Mishnah. And that's this book. It's a fabulous read. So 1,200 pages, and this is called the Oral Torah. So during the time of Jesus, there were debates about how do you understand this law? How do you understand this law? And they would debate back and forth of how do you interpret it? And then eventually they wrote it down so we wouldn't forget it. So 1,200 pages of the oral Torah. And then they thought, well, that's probably not enough. So then they, they wrote this book called the Gemara. And the Gemara is about 6,000 pages long. So what we have is the Torah, which to, to kind of understand it, the way I think about it is it's like the Torah is like our constitution. That is a long word. Okay, so the Torah is like the constitution and the Mishnah is kind of like our Supreme Court. Like that's where you debate and have discussions of how to interpret what's going on in the Torah. And the Gemara, probably the closest approximation, it would be like political talk radio. So, <laughs> all right, so political talk radio. And my question is, when you're listening to political talk radio, how much of the Constitution do you normally hear? Very little. There, there's normally very little to do with the Constitution, and the, the same can often be true. The farther away we get from the original law, the original intention, we, religious people in particular have a tendency to try to be more conservative than God. We try and add just a little barrier, an extra barrier, another extra layer because we want to stay away from the line. We want to make sure we don't cross over. And, and ultimately, the laws were meant for a beautiful purpose. What one Jewish writer says it this way. He, um, he says that the kosher laws, which should come up there in a second. There we go. More than serving as health codes or superstitious protection, they gave Jews a way to create a sacred space around them wherever they traveled. That the goal of the law is good. The goal of the law is, was to create a sacred space 
But the question is, if God's heart is to have relationship with you, then what do we do with the laws? What do we do with the picture of God that seems to be law-oriented? Now, last week, I I quoted a guy named Blaise Pascal, and I want to share the quote again. He says that God created man in his image, and then man returned the compliment. God created man in his image, and then we turned around and projected our image onto God. That there are portraits of God where it, it, it often can be our projection of God more than it is actually the character of God. And the beauty of God is that he actually accommodates to that sometimes. That he actually says, all right, I'm going to work with that as I move you towards who I really am. And the, so the question is, are there ways that this picture of God as rule-oriented could carry some cultural baggage to them? And I'm going to argue there are, and I want to share just a little brief explanation of that. So here's the story. So Israel left Egypt, the Exodus. This is one of the the, the most incredible stories in the Bible. And they left Egypt in about 1400 B.C. And they had been slaves for 400 years. They, they, they were in this foreign land. They were in the midst of foreign gods. They were, they were wrestling with, are we ever going to be free? And then they get freed and they enter this new land where it wasn't just a land where nobody was. Like There was a culture there. There were laws there. There was something there that influenced them. And so the question is, how much did they get influenced? And I'm... Um, I'm going to nerd out for a moment, so I need you guys to stick with me. Like, this next section I could do for about an hour, and I need to make it shorter. So, here's the deal. So, one of the laws of the land, when Israel came into the land, was this thing called the Code of Hammurabi. I know, it's so good. So, the Code of Hammurabi, here's a picture of it, which is so fun. Okay, so this is at the Louvre. This code, this is like a giant rock that's like seven and a half feet tall. And on the back of it, where that guy is very thoughtfully looking... There are 282 laws in here. And this is one of a number of ancient Near Eastern law codes. And here's the deal. Not only are some of these laws similar in scope and similar in consequence, but many of them are verbatim to what we see in the Old Testament. Many of them, not only do they have a similar topic, a similar language, but some of them are even in the exact same order as we come upon them in the Bible. So what is going on? I mean, you've got laws in there about, well, I know this is applicable for all of us. What do you do when your oxen gores somebody? Like, am I punished? Are they punished? Is it their fault? Is it my fault? Is it my oxen's fault? Who gets hurt? I mean, these are practical things. You've got the lex talion, which is the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which we see in scripture. You have the specific rules in the same order about animal theft, animal rental, injury, and renting of animals, child rebellion, homicide, striking a pregnant woman, kidnapping, burglary, crop damage, and seducing women, which you're not supposed to do. It's not a law to do. So there are certainly unique elements in these 613 laws, and most of it has to do with the motivation of why we do the law is because we want to honor God. But what I'm going to argue is that there is an assumption in the ancient Near Eastern world that the way that you relate to God is through a law code like this. And that God, in his willingness to stoop, to look like a rule and law-oriented deity, showed up looking that way because that's how the people assumed he was going to look. 
They come into a land and their understanding walking into the land is you relate to God through rules. So God shows up and says, okay, I can work with that. And then I'm going to move you towards the mirror image of myself like we saw in Hebrews 1. This perfect expression of who God is in Jesus. So the question is, if the rule-oriented God is some kind of an accommodation to the people's assumption of God, what does God look like when he shows up without any clouds? And this we see in Jesus. So I want to point out just a few things that Jesus talks about as it relates to rules. And ultimately, he subverts the whole thing. It's crazy. Most people think that's why he got killed. Um, So there's four things I want to focus on. The first one is there, and we didn't get to any of them, and there's some of the best laws, but about dietary laws. Like, you can eat this and you can't eat that. That animal's clean. That animal's unclean. You can't eat bacon. Um, Like, and Jesus comes along and he says, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what you say And then he deals with divorce and remarriage. And there's a whole chapter in the Mishnah about how to interpret the language in the Old Testament about, like, mainly in that context, it was what can a guy use to divorce his wife? Like, what is sort of the loophole that he can use? And Jesus comes along and says, there's no loopholes. Like, my point was that, that you should always stay married if it's at all possible, that his heart is for it. And Jesus actually says that you're, like, loophole mentality around that was actually an accommodation to your hardness of heart. He calls the law an accommodation. And then he talks about the Sabbath. And this is where he starts really messing things up. Because he talks about how the Sabbath is not about rules, it's about people getting rest from a God. They desperately need rest. They desperately need rest. And there are some stories where he is like, seemingly quoting the Mishnah as a way to say that's not the way it's supposed to work. So there's one example where he heals a guy. And he says, you're healed, now pick up your mat and go home. And the very next verse says, and this was done on the Sabbath. Now, guess what it says in the Mishnah? You're not allowed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. And then there's another example where Jesus heals a blind man. And he heals him, but Jesus could have healed him however he wanted. But what he does is he picks up some dirt, pours some water on it, rubs it all together, and then puts it on the guy's eyes. Why? Guess what it says in the Mishnah? On the Sabbath, you cannot mix a solid and a liquid. And Jesus, and, and Jesus says, well, it's the Sabbath, let me heal you. Jesus intentionally subverts the Sabbath to show you it was never about that. That God wants your heart. He doesn't want the empty ritual. God wants your heart. It's, he, he tells another story, and um, I, I'm not good at drawing, and I'm going to try it anyway. So here's the deal. He tells a story about a cup, but I, I don't think I can do it. I'm going to do a bucket. So here's my bucket. Does that look like a bucket? All right, thanks. All right, so he talks about this bucket or this cup and he says, you clean the outside, but the inside is full of greed and wickedness and anger and lust and hatred. And the, so the, the cup itself, the bucket, that's our form. And the form could take many shapes. I mean, the form is essentially the what? The form, like in this case, is the law. The form are the rules. 
But what's inside is what's really important. And what inside is the substance. And the substance is the why. Why do you do the things that you do? The point of, of any law, the point of any form is to instill a value in your heart. And if it stops instilling the value in your heart, the form has, not, it has lost its usefulness. So the substance is the why. And the ultimate substance we see over and over through scripture is that the substance is relationship. The substance is I want your heart. So the substance is a relationship with God. I mean, it's kind of like, it, we, we like to do kind of a big deal at our house about Easter. So like, what, we'll do kind of the whole thing where like the night before, we'll like fill all the eggs, we'll hide them all over, and then my kids will wake up and they'll just like barrel downstairs and go find them all. And I, I was thinking, it's like, what would happen if they found them all, they sat at the kitchen table, they start opening them up and every one of them is empty. I mean, can you imagine the anarchy? But it's a form that does not have a substance to it. And Paul digs into this too when he talks about the law. Here's what he says in Galatians 3. He says, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under a curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who doesn't observe and obey all the commands written in God's book of the law. Consequently, it's, it's clear that no one can ever be made right with God by trying to keep the law. The scriptures say it's through faith that a righteous person has life. And then again in verse 19, he says, well, why then was the law given? It was given to show how guilty you are. But the system of law was to last only until the coming of the child to whom God's promise was made, who is Jesus. I mean, how many of these laws had we all messed up on? A lot. And not only had we messed up on those, but we'd messed up on this. And if I could hold the Gemara, we would have messed up on that too. That the point Paul is making is that to try and get right with God by following the law is absurd. That you're never going to be able to do it. And that was the point. The point was to look at it all and go, well, gosh, I'm probably going to need a savior for this thing. <laughs> and, and God said, great, that's what I got for you. I have that. I'm probably going to need a savior for this one. So, okay, so we've got the Old Testament, a lot of rules, pictures God as rule-oriented. And then the New Testament, we see Jesus and Paul subverting and flipping the law on its head. And the question is, do we get any glimpses in the Old Testament where God looks like this Jesus-looking God? And thank God we do. I, I want to show you three real quickly. The first is Hosea 6.6. 6. I love this. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. What's the substance? It's love, right? It's relationship. And then again in Micah 6, look at, look at this verse, I love this. It says, how can I stand before God and show proper respect to the high God? Should I bring an armload of offerings topped with yearly calves? And if you've read Leviticus, the answer is, yeah. That's exactly what God wants. Would God be impressed with thousands of rams with buckets and barrels of olive oil? What's the answer? Of course he would. It's in the law. And then he goes on to say, would he be moved if I sacrificed my firstborn child, my precious baby to cancel my sin? And in the ancient Near Eastern world, that was a common practice to the gods. But he's already made it plain how to live, what to do, what God's actually looking for. It's quite simple. 
And here's the substance. Do what's fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate, loyal in your love, and don't take yourself too seriously. Take God seriously. So what is the substance? It's being fair. It's being just. It's being loyal. There's humility. So the substance we see all over the Old Testament. And one more place in Amos 5. I love this verse. Here's what they say. It says, and this is from the message. Uh, It says, I can't stand your religious meetings. Uh Uh-oh, I think we're having a religious meeting. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. And then he asked the question that just hit to the heart for me. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice. Oceans of it. I want fairness. Rivers of it. That's what I want and that's all I want. So what's the substance? Again, do you see a trend? Fairness. Justice. God wants your heart. Because if he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't want the flowers anymore. If he doesn't have your heart, he doesn't want the flowers anymore. So I want to leave you with a couple things today. The first one is that we need to beware of our need for new rules, new rituals, new regulations, new routines. Because however much we might verbally say, I don't like the law, I think many of us are more afraid of grace. Because what I know is that sometimes God feels intangible. He feels far away and when that happens, I can have like a spiritual panic attack and feel like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? I I, I need to look presentable to what feels like a distant and far away God and I loved the way Lauren brought us into that this morning of to breathe. God is as close as our breath and to the degree we forget that, we start grasping at an allegiance to an institution rather than a relationship to an individual. We start grasping at things that are not God and that he actually says, I don't want if your heart's not behind it. There's a danger of creating new forms without a corresponding uh, substance. Like church could be a new form. Uh, Bible reading, that could be a new form. Prayer could, worship could, giving could, all these things, all of, they're good things, right? But it's possible to do all those and forget who you're doing them for. That it's possible to go to church and actually forget why you're here. It's possible to like, like I mean, we, we come to church to praise and worship a God who says, you don't have to come here to be okay with me. Like, we read the Bible because it's in the Bible we learn about a God who says, I'm not into the rules of what you need to do. And we pray to grow intimacy with a God who says, I just want your heart. I don't need you to do this. And we worship, but we worship in order to show God and express a love song to a God who says, you don't need to sing to me, but oh, I'd love it if you would, if your heart's in it, if you're with me. There is a need to beware because ultimately we do all of these things out of celebration for a God who says I love you not to earn anything because you can't earn what you already have. 
okay? And then finally, um, we need to start ending the performance game. Here's a quote from a, one of my favorite authors, Robert Farrar Capon. He says, grace can't prevail until our lifelong certainty that someone is keeping score has run out of steam and collapsed. It has run out of steam and collapsed. That Do you know God's not keeping score? Like you can think about all the junk that you've done and God doesn't, he's not a bookie up there keeping the numbers. Like he's not keeping score. And there are so many benefits to transforming our mind to remember the picture of God that says I'm not keeping score. Like I, I know a lot of guys and I've met a lot of guys at, at the mission where I work where like you could, it's possible to confuse religion and rules and routines with God lump them all together and then walk away from it all. Because if you feel like you have no reason to have any kind of love from God and you assume that God is about rules and you know you haven't measured up, then it's, well, why would I try and play that game? I know I'll fail. And yet in the midst of that, one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, says this, you don't have to be good. You don't have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You don't have to be good because God doesn't want the empty ritual. He doesn't want the form. He wants your heart. Because when he has your heart, you start caring about the things God cares about. You start actually wanting to live out justice and love and relationship and fairness and wholeness and beauty, but you do it because you're celebrating the goodness of God. You're, you're not doing it to try and earn something that God says you already have. So, what's holding you back from offering God your whole heart? Jesus quotes Isaiah and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. And I don't know what it is for you. I, I think that uh, there's a lot of people in here that have been a part of church a long time. And I think it's possible that you can be a part of church so long you forget why you come. It's possible that you could be going through the motions because you thought what God wanted was you to just come to church. He thought, you thought that what he wanted was, well, I just show up every Sunday. That's what you do. You just give the flowers. You just give the flowers. And I think there's some here that maybe are new believers and you're just trying to figure out, okay, can I trust that when God says you're going to have fullness of life, that that life is actually more full than the life I used to be living? Like, can I actually trust it's good? And then I think there's some in here that are just exploring this faith thing, that are trying to figure out, can I make the leap? And it all feels kind of mysterious sometimes. And as we end, I, I, I want to just proclaim to you that for whatever the reason why you might be holding back your whole heart, that the God of the universe has an invitation for you. He has an invitation for you. And it's an invitation that I'm going to read to you from Hosea 11. And I'm just going to ask, if you're comfortable with it, to just put your hands out and close your eyes and receive this as an invitation from God for you. God says, when you were a child, I loved you. When you were far off, I called you. But the more I called to you, the more you walked away from me. You kept on sacrificing to other masters. 
you played the religion game more. But I was the one who taught you to walk. I was holding you up by your arms and you didn't even know it was me. I led you with leather cords, with ropes of love, I showed you the way and as I worked with you, I lifted that heavy yoke from your neck and I bent down to give you food. But you were determined to turn away. But how can I give up on you? How could I ever turn you over? My heart is bursting within me and all at once my compassion is stirred. You will someday turn back to me. And listen to this. And God says, I will bring you home again. The God of the universe wants to bring you home and it's a place where he's asking for your heart He's not looking for the rules. He's not looking for you to just figure out how do, I get, how do I get God to do what I want him to do by just doing the right thing. He says, I want your heart. So, would you stand with me, church? I'm gonna invite our prayer teams to come forward and the invitation that I have for you is that if there is some place where you feel like you're going through the motions, there's a ritual you're following, and it's just been lacking heart. These prayer teams would love to pray with you about that, to invite God into that. If you, you have never surrendered your life to a God who actually is for you and isn't needing you to get put together before you come to him, these people would love to start that invitation. So Woodland Hills, go and be people that live out of the fullness of your heart, knowing that that is all God wants. Amen? All right, have a good one.